0: the world says you can do one or the other. You can love your gay family and friends, or you can adhere to biblical truth. And the reality is for those of us that love God and want to worship in spirit and truth and elevate his word as the ultimate authority, you don't get to choose one or the other. You have to do both and you have to do them with all your might.
1: I so appreciate Katie Faust uh, and her comments there talking about the call of all Christians to both love people and speak truth. Welcome to Refocus with Jim Daly, a podcast production from Focus on the Family. As a pastor's wife, Katie never had a desire to get involved with politics, but she saw the disastrous trends in our culture and the negative impacts on children and she had to speak up she was compelled Uh, she saw government policies that place more importance on the comfort and happiness of adults than on the well-being of children and she felt called to defend the rights of children to have both a mother and a father isn't that novel and that shouldn't be a political issue. I can't wait for you to hear her incredible passion and all the information she's gathered to help us, the church, stand for the children, the most vulnerable in our society. Because our world is so polarized on issues like this, I want you to hear conversations on refocus, like this one with Katie, to help you see your call as a Christian to demonstrate grace and love to others as you share truth about what's best for children and if you want to continue the conversation and hear more about current events and living as a christian in the culture check out my daily blog you can sign up for it and make comments and the link will be in the show notes in today's episode katie will share an important message about doing the right things for kids which often means We as adults need to make sacrifices, take a back seat to our children. We'll also have a segment about transgender issues and how that is doing great harm to children and teens as well. Katie Faust is founder and president of Them Before Us, a global movement defending children's rights to a mother and father. She publishes, speaks, and testifies widely on why marriage and family are so important. And she and her husband, a pastor, are raising their four children in Seattle. Katie will be sharing insights and stories from her book, Them Before Us, Why We Need a Global Children's Rights Movement. She does a great job of outlining the issues, and I hope you'll get the book from us. Now here's my recent conversation with Katie Faust on Refocus with Jim Daly. Katie, it truly is an honor to have you here. Thank you.
0: Oh, it's my honor, Jim. I'm the one that's honored to be here. Thanks for having me. It's been
1: long overdue. You and I shared a stage at the Lighthouse Voices, something we're uh, co-partnering with with uh, John Stone Street at the Mm -hmm. Colson Center. It's going really well, and the idea there is just to bring intellectual thinkers people of God to to say things that really sometimes aren't being said. So it was great. And I connected with you that night. We probably had 4 or 500 people in that crammed room. It was amazing.
0: Yeah, it was tight. And Good I, questions. I, I love I, the yeah. Q&A.
1: And I th- I think people need to hear what you have experienced, what you are observing and your you know, strong voice uh, for the family family structure, the mm-hmm. biblical definition of family. So, let's get into it. Um, how did you get involved? In this thought of defending children's rights.
0: Yeah. I got in by accident, Jim. Okay, yeah. But
1: you're a mother of how many?
0: (laughs) I've got four kids, four awesome kids. Um, And that's what I was doing before I was doing children's rights activism is I was just a mom. I was just a pastor's wife. We had just come home from China with our youngest child. They were, you know, eight Six, four, and two, right when we got back. Oh, and I,
1: yeah, I. That must have been a nice plane ride.
0: Oh, well, no. <laughs> you know what? We only took our, our, Third child with us to go because oh, okay. no, I mean come I was going to say
1: that is a that's a brood to take to a trip to China. Yeah, and
0: when you know what, do we, is this the point where I say how Focus on the family got me into the adoption? Uh, no,
1: we're not covering that. Not. No, that's great.
0: <laughs> no, I'm going to tell you. Yeah, I'm going to tell you. My we had three kids. We had just moved to Seattle. Um, my husband is the senior pastor of our church there, and um, we were here in we were here in Colorado for a family wedding, and we were watching like a preseason Bronco game, and you guys. <laughs> Put a commercial on during the game.
1: That was 2010.
0: That was a long. That was 2010. Or
1: could it? Was that the uh, uh, Tim Tebow ad? No, or it was John 3:16.
0: No, it was the ad. I'll tell you what the ad okay, was, yeah. Jim, because I remember because it changed the course of my life. Where you know you had like whatever I don't know stock photos of kids and families, blah blah blah, and then you said you know if one family out of every eight church, in every eight churches in Colorado were to adopt a child, we'd have no orphans left in Colorado. Yes. And my husband and I looked at each other, and we just went, oh, my gosh. And I had worked in adoption. When we lived here in Colorado, I was the assistant director at the largest Chinese adoption agency in the world at the time, which was in Littleton. So I've got an adoption background, but I had not personally felt called to adopt. But it was your commercial that made (laughs) us go, "Uh, are we doing this? And then over the next couple days, in the word, like God confirmed oh, you're doing this with all your might. So the reason why I'm a mother of four is partially because of focus on the family.
1: Well, I got a confession to make because you've me. been so kind to say that. But when we did foster adoption, we were, we were promoting that. Get involved in foster. Yeah. Same kind of thing. You know, kids need a home. There's hundred over 100,000 kids mm-hmm. where parental rights have been terminated. Yeah. And about another 350,000 that are just in the system needing temporary assistance. Yeah. And you know, when you look at those numbers, you have 350,000, 360,000 churches. I mean, if every church got involved, it yeah. would take care of the problem. I and I made that challenge and I got home and Jean, my wife, said, well, if you're going to ask other people to do it, we should do it. And mm-hmm. I was like, no, I was the foster kid. I don't yeah, need to yeah. pay that due. I can check that box. <laughs> I was so quick to go there. Yeah. And she looked at me, you know, that stink eye mm-hmm. that your spouse can give you. It's the mm-hmm. eye of conviction. Yeah. And I went, okay. So we got through the system, you know, we got registered and approved. And mm-hmm. I think we had 15 kids over the years. Wow. But You know, it was really fun. We're still really close with a couple of those kids. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a it's, rewarding experience. It's and there's no greater call for us as Christians. And again, if we were involved, uh, A, the problem would not be there. And B, I think the world be, would be looking at us like they did the early church, mm-hmm. go, wow, what are they doing? It would bring great respect to the church.
0: Well, and I I look at the people in my world, and many of them have answered that call to adopt, to foster. Um, and that's not easy. You know, it's not no. easy on kids. It's not easy on parents. Um, but I do see the the core christian concern for children lived out in yeah. the way that i know so many families that have answered that call mm-hmm. obviously there is room for more there's yeah. much more room out there for adults to you know this is where we get into a little bit of the overlap with my work for adults to to do hard things on behalf of children
1: well we're going to uncover that i so appreciate that and that's one of the things that really attracted me to what you were saying in michigan that mm-hmm. night because I've never seen anybody with the forcefulness and accuracy, I would describe it, as you talk about the welfare of children mm-hmm. and that being the number one goal. And we're going to get into that. But let's uh, first go to your family of origin. Oh, yeah. we got to talk about who you are and what up. formed all these wonderful yeah. biblical opinions that you have. But tell me about how you grew up.
0: Yeah. Well, I was not a Christian, Did not was not raised in a Christian home. Uh, my parents divorced when I was 10 and my father dated and remarried. And very soon after the divorce, my mom partnered with another woman and they've been together ever
1: since. And you were in that household. Oh
0: yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. Like I would split time between my father's home and my mother's home. And so when I was with my mom, it was with her and her partner and largely this community of, of lesbian women that they ran with. And I love them. Like I've never had any kind of, there's never been any conflict yeah. or strife between us. Um, if you Google me, you know, you'll know you see woman with two moms tr- campaigns for traditional marriage. Right. Um, I don't have two moms. Nobody has two moms. Wow. Everybody has a mom and dad. Yeah. Um, I don't consider my mom's partner to be my mom, but I consider her to be my friend. And they, both of them are always welcome At my house. They've always been a feature of my life and my children's life and my life today. Uh, So, one thing that I talk about, and it's not, I'm not doing this because I have this broken story and I was raised fatherless or anything like that. You don't have an
1: axe to grind. No,
0: no, no, no. And my dad stayed in my life. And honestly, one of the reasons why I can walk into a nonprofit firm handshake with every man that I meet <laughs> is because my dad. Dad's you are a confident confidence. person. I love it. It's, it's a dad-given thing. Hmm. Dads give their daughters confidence in a way that no other person can. Wow. And my dad did that for me. So this is not a, oh, you know, I've got these wounds from childhood. I empathize and I understand and I know what divorce brings. And I and there is complexity when your parents go on to form other romantic relationships. Um, but the motivation for my work is not because I've got this broken Bond with my mom or dad. Thankfully, I remained connected to both of them all through my life. And actually, one of the reasons why I started writing about this was to say confidently that Christians can and must stand firm on God's design for sex and marriage for the sake of the rights and well being of children and simultaneously be the most loving and sacrificial person in the life of their gay family and friends. And there's zero contradiction between those two things. Yeah, right. The world says you can do one or the other. You can love your gay family and friends, or you can adhere to biblical truth. And the reality is for those of us that love God and want to worship in spirit and truth and elevate his word as the ultimate authority— you don't you don't get to choose one or the other you have to do both and you have to do them with all your might
1: well it's so important because so often in the christian community and some people unfortunately fit that stereotype where they do attack and Mm -hmm. they do sound bigoted it's not unfounded and i want to make sure we hear that because as i read the scripture when it says to talk to the world in gentleness Mm -hmm. or with gentleness that's not a suggestion yeah, I mean, I think the Lord is instructing us through Paul and in, in his own words to do that because it unlocks, it cracks the heart mm-hmm. of that unbeliever to listen. Yes. If you show people love and respect, you tend to get it. And I think it's because of how God wired our DNA, our spiritual DNA. Yeah. It's hard to... To really push away somebody that is sincere, yeah. even if you don't agree with them. That's what I have found. But speak to that for a minute, that the label of bigoted and I mean you've had to face this and yeah. you know it's it's really and I mean this as a shocking statement, it's a cheap shot because that's not that's really not understanding mm-hmm. what we believe is as Christians who are willing to engage and to love them and to talk with them. Yeah. Uh, it has
0: been a weapon wielded very effectively against Christians and people who believe in the traditional family in general, generally because we are, in my opinion, my perspective, the world that I am in, which is a church in Seattle that has been sifted, like I'm not in the Bible Belt, maybe it's different in some places, but where I live... um, People are purified through the hostility that surrounds them. And so they tend to cling to grace and truth well, in my opinion, because they have been forced to by a culture, right? That is really saying, you better know what you believe and why. And if you add any additional stumbling blocks to the truth, I mean, I think about, you know, first Peter, where it talks about Christ is a rock. You either build your life on him. Or you trip on him, but he's a rock. And so Christians have erred in two ways, in my opinion. One is they try to make the rock not a rock. They're like, it's really not that
1: Make it a carpet.
0: Or a (laughs) Play-Doh, right? Something squishy. But you can't build a house on Play-Doh, right? It also doesn't hurt as much when you trip over Play-Doh, right? But that's not who Christ is and what his truth is. His truth is a rock. It needs to be a rock because it's worth building your life on, so one problem is trying to change the rock into something squishier and soft so it doesn't hurt people. The other problem is scattering tons more additional rocks in their path, mm. right, that like are that. unnecessary. Yeah. And so the challenge for Christians is, especially because we all tend to fall on either the truth teller or the grace giver side of the spectrum, Um We are all either naturally the truth teller. I'm going to just say it like it is. No holds barred. I'm not going to be compassionate or sensitive. That's for wussies. Right. right? But then you've got the other people that are like, I'm going to be so compassionate and empathetic that I will forsake the truth. Yeah. And you don't get to, you do not get to choose one or the other. The grace givers have to grow in truth telling and the truth tellers have to grow in grace giving. And to me, that is the perfect balance that Christians have to achieve. And it's hard. To me, I describe it as trying to straddle a fence that's a little too high. Yeah. And you've got to keep a toe on each side, but it's so uncomfortable. And so you kind of hop from one side to the other, but you don't get to hop. Right. You have to do both.
1: And arguably, Jesus did it perfectly. He did it perfectly. Know? But it was love yes. and truth. Yes. And that's that's the challenge. And I think in in a certain way, Katie, our personalities lean one direction yes. or the other. And that's part of growth in this human experience. I mean, we there are... Basically, they say about seven personality Mm -hmm. traits, you know, Mm -hmm. and we fall into that. That's why they can do a a psychological test, like a DISC test and they, tell you you're bent. Mm -hmm. You are a truth teller. They Mm -hmm. even use that language. You're a black and white person. Mm -hmm. Your vocation should be biology or chemistry. (laughs) (laughs) And then you're, you know, you kind of can move with the flow. Oh, you should be a salesperson. You're a social worker. Yeah, you can. right. You can move in. And it it even plays out in our personalities like that. But the Lord doesn't let us sit there with that excuse. He wants us to be like him. Mm -hmm. Therefore, we have to learn. We're going to bend this in toward children because Mm -hmm. this is where my heart just, ah, you speak so much life into what I hear you saying about children and the misconstruction that we've created now in the culture around our obligation Mm -hmm. as the adult in the room Mm -hmm. to do the first and foremost thing, which is to protect children. That has cut loose. I mean, it's so obvious now that adults really are using children in many, many ways to meet their needs. That's and right. that's not the way it's supposed to be. So let, let's get into that. Talk about this idea of children's rights. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds pleasant. It sounds like something the left would uh, construe. Mm-hmm. And it's good. Mm-hmm. But what do you mean by children's rights? Well, a,
0: a little more like why I got into this. I am the grace giver, I don't like to lose my friends. (laughs) I want to keep the peace. And so God had to do a big work in me to move me away from just wanting to maintain relationships towards a place where I said, no, there's very real children being harmed here, and they are worth defending. So I got into this during the marriage debate when we were debating whether or not it was a mom and a dad or whether it was two men or two women. And what I heard the other side saying is, kids don't care if they have two moms or two dads. Just
1: people that love them.
0: They just need safety and love. And I had been working with kids for decades in adoption, in youth ministry. I still run the youth ministry at our church. I've not yet met a kid who doesn't care if their mom or dad is out of their life. And that's really what you're talking about with two moms or two dads. You're looking at a kid who has lost their mom or dad. That's what that means. Yeah, by design. By design, often by design. And so I said, "This is you are lying about children. You are lying about children for a political goal, for a political aim. You are going to diminish one of the primary wounds and and most long-lasting wounds that children experience, mother or father loss or both, so you can advance a political cause. And that is when I said, okay, it's worth losing friends. It's worth my social acceptance to say, I am going to speak up on their behalf. Um, So that's how this began. And it really was first started as writing about why marriage is a matter of justice for children. right? Taking it out of the realm of, this is something between the bonds and connections that adults form, and even taking it out of, well, this is God's design, right? This is God-ordained. This is an institution given by God. That is all true, but really what happens when we change policy on marriage is children are victimized. That's what it is.
1: Describe that for the person listening who's going, okay, how? How, this is how.
0: Because children have a right to their mother and father, okay? Mm. Children have a right to their mother and father. And I understand that this is a bit of a foreign concept, and we can talk about rights and why we're using that word rights, because you are correct that the left has co-opted and adulterated the term children's rights to advance things that are not only not children's rights, but ideologies that actually damage children's rights. Mm. So they have flipped They have flipped that word, they've inverted it to use for, in, very many cases, nefarious aims. But when you look at natural law, the idea of we know how we ought to live based on looking at the natural world, right? This is the same kind of metric that Martin Luther King Jr. used when he advocated for equal rights during the civil rights era. He didn't appeal to our laws, which didn't recognize equal rights between blacks and whites. He appealed to natural law, which recognizes equal dignity on behalf of everybody. So with that same Um, lens, kind of philosophical lens of looking at the natural world, seeing what things are for, and then you can discern how things ought to be. That is called natural law. And that is actually the basis on which we have been arguing for children's right to life for 50 years. Right? We said, okay, maybe our civil laws don't recognize that children have a right to life, but natural law does. So we're going to advocate for children's natural right to life. You can use that same metric to discern that children have a right to the two people responsible for their existence, their own mom and dad. And I know that your audience is filled with adoptive parents like me, right? right? And foster parents like you. And so we can talk about adoption and how adoption is an institution that actually upholds children's rights. But let's first talk about this primary right to your own mother and father. Why is that so important? Number one, the two people responsible for a child's existence, their own biological parents, are statistically the safest, most connected, most protective adults in the child's life. Mm-hmm. Okay,
1: Whether it's the father or the mother.
0: Right. Both the mother and the father. So we have a book called Them Before Us, Why We Need a Global Children's Rights Movement. So you can go there. You can see the reams of studies. We actually don't have to guess about any of this. We've been studying family structure for decades. We have all the data that we need to show that outcomes for children are diminished when they are raised apart from one or both of their biological parents. That even left-leaning organizations like Child Trends would admit that children fare best when raised in the married home of their biological mother and father. There is something about biology that advantages children when it comes to protecting them, investing in them, and connecting with
1: them. Let me let me break into this. There's so many things I want to ask you. There's so many uh, wonderful tangents we could mm-hmm. follow. So let me hit a couple of them. One is the absolute... Desert in government policy when it comes to supporting that, Mm -hmm. with all the data that is there to say this is the best structure, this is the best way to go. I applaud Australia, for example, that if you're uh, filing for divorce and you have kids under 18 in the home, it's a mandatory six month counseling period. Mm -hmm. And they thankfully have been able to save marriages. What a brilliant thing to do! So, that's a policy that government can introduce that helps safeguard and and keep in place the structure that produces the best outcomes so we seem to run from that in this country this
0: is where this is the only conversation we should have had when the gay marriage debate came up it should in my opinion it should not have been a religious liberty debate it should not have because you know what people hear when they when we make it about religious liberty they hear wait a second selfish selfish yeah. you're telling me that if my brother that i love and he's been in a relationship with his partner for 10 years that if they can't get married you're going to have to arrange flowers you don't want to what you're not the victim here right they are the victim but neither of those people are the victims when you get marriage policy wrong children are the victims
1: yeah they're the key victims.
0: yes so when you talk about why isn't there more policy around the importance of a being child being raised by their biological parents that is literally what marriage is for that is what marriage is for. Why is marriage a matter of justice for children? Because it is the only relationship that unites the two people to whom children have a natural right for life. It is the only vehicle that we have discovered as a species thus far that maximizes child thriving. So far, there's no other family structure. There's no arrangement. There's no group home. There's no, any, there's no government subsidies that ever get children to the place where they are able to run the marathon of life better. Other than being raised by their own mom and dad. And that is what marriage is. At its core, that is what marriage is. It is a vehicle for child thriving. It is not a way for adults to have their emotional bonds validated. Um, In the religious world, yeah, God gave this to us, but functionally, it benefits all of humanity. It's not an institution just for Christians, it's an institution for humans. This is a human institution. And when you're looking at who children are and what they need, There is no other arrangement of this institution that benefits kids.
1: Something the church has called common grace, that it applies to the world. If you talk about the issue of love, everybody wants to understand and feel Mm -hmm. and express love. But love is a characteristic from God. Yes, You take God out of the equation, you take love out of the equation. Mm -hmm. So it's important. Okay, another one of these tangents. And I'm asking these, I'm playing the opposite position. Oh, you Just don't scare me, Jim Daly. D- well, Give, it no, me. I, I know, Give it to I me. no, I know I don't scare you. That <laughs> kind of scares me. <laughs> but the, uh, the point of that is this idea that two adults who are in love, that mm-hmm. care about each other. Uh, let's hit this again a little harder, because a lot of Christians are in that conversation. You know, for adults who care about each other, if they're same sex, whatever part of the alphabet of LGBTQ plus is, mm-hmm. you know, why should we have the right to get in between that Mm -hmm. um, directly. Mm
0: -hmm. So those
1: conversations are happening, and that's often the idea of tolerance. Tolerance has really become the religion of the day. Mm -hmm. It's got a code of ethics, one of which is, if you disagree with my love and my expression of love to the person I choose, you're a bigot, you're Mm -hmm. intolerant, Mm -hmm. and therefore you're outside the mainstream religion.
0: Right. Well, so that's the problem is, who's your God? Is it love? Is it I mean, love?: it's me. To, right? That's right. That's, <laughs> That's exactly is. right. is like you have to decide what your God is, and if tolerance is your God, you will make sacrifices to that God. And if love, absence of truth is your God, you will make sacrifices to that God. If it is sex and self, which I would argue is the main God of our day, you will make sacrifices to sex and self. And the amazing thing is that sex is connected to babies. And so if sex is your god, children are is always children will always be the sacrifice on the altar of that god. And that is what we see playing out in almost all of these conversations about marriage and family is sex as god. My romantic feelings, identity, passions, longings, losses, that is god. Everything must be sacrificed to appease that god. And it is Always, kids that are going to pay the price the most.
1: Yeah, we uh, do a series with Ray Vanderlaan called "That the World May Know." Uh, it mm. is an awesome series. Sounds it, apologetic. It, it it is. It's mm-hmm. full of uh, biblical uh, instruction, but really understanding the Eastern mindset of uh, mm. the Jewish people mm-hmm. and what they're expressing in Scripture. You know, mm. Old Testament, New Testament, what the meaning behind the meaning is. Yeah. And so often, you know, in the English translation, we can lose some of that meaning because words don't coordinate quite succinctly. Mm-hmm. And that's what Ray really teaches you. This is what the expression is saying. But in that context, he, uh, one of the lessons he talks about, I believe it's Moloch, mm. the god of Moloch. Okay. And he talks about how people would sacrifice their infant children mm-hmm. for better crops, yep. for a greater environment. For, for
0: more fertility.
1: For more fertility. Mm-hmm. And you know, he makes the uh, observation... That nothing's new is under the sun, That's right. and we are doing that very thing now. So the excuse where I can't afford to have a child, so I'm going to need to abort mm-hmm. this child. Mm-hmm. He's saying that is a form of worship of. Mullock. That's right. You know, that you're giving up, you're sacrificing your child. Now this sounds really harsh, and I know women are in difficult situations, and unfortunately too many men aren't there to support that woman, the father of that Mm -hmm. baby. I understand all that. It's not for guilt that I'm saying this, but it's for the observation of the selfishness that we have fallen into. Right. Do you see that analogy?
0: 100%, and it's the right analogy. Mm. It is the right analogy. So what do you do in response? Because abortion is, I would say, an attack on a child's primary right. It's all of our primary right. The most fundamental of all rights is our right to life. And thank God we've got hundreds of amazing organizations fighting for children's right to life. Children have a right on this side of the womb as well primarily their right to their mother and father. And actually, the same kind of methods to defend that right need to be employed in both battles, I would say. But one thing that Christians have as a major advantage to this is a high view, number one, of the human person, that we are all made in the image of God. Number two, a special protectiveness for children. That is something that is distinct to the Christian ethic. Christians have got to be the people that are being the most Zealous protectors of kids because we have the worldview that supports it. Not a lot of other worldviews have the same lens through which you can say that child, regardless of their location, development, socioeconomic status, deserves to have their rights protected. And it's like what you said, the first century Christians lived that out by fishing kids out of rivers, by, by saving the ones that were being exposed to At the, the dump, elements. That's yeah. exactly right. Today's Christians need to do the same thing, defending children's rights in the womb and outside of the womb. Now, here's the challenge. Adults have to sacrifice. The challenge is that child-centric lens of children have a right to life and they have a right to their mother and father means that at some point, every adult is going to have to sacrifice in some way so they're not making a kid pay the price for them. So that is where this gets very, very uncomfortable, because this child-centric message does not give any adults a pass.
1: And I heard you say that when we were together on that stage, and you said it in a way, correct me if I'm wrong, but what made the impact on me is you said when people, when the culture understood that it was the adult's responsibility to sacrifice for their children, Mm -hmm. it wasn't Mm questioned. But now we expect children to sacrifice for adults, whether it be their life their parent structure. Yep. It's the me, it's the selfishness of adults that are costing children everything.
0: Yeah. When we, at them before us, what we do is we look at every marriage and family issue through the lens of the rights of the child. So I understand that there are adult interests, adult concerns, adult struggles in every area that we address. The solution can never be forcing a kid to sacrifice for you.
1: It shouldn't be. Right.
0: It shouldn't be. And from a Christian perspective, it can never be. That is incompatible with our faith. Our faith is the faith of the strongest of all coming down to sacrifice for the weakest among us. And then he says, go and do likewise. Our worldview is one that requires the strong to sacrifice for the weak and never the other way around.
1: Yeah. Let me uh, pitch... It's not a hypothetical. I actually got this question from a New York Times reporter who called on, with background questions. Mm-hmm. So that is typically off the record. Mm-hmm. You've probably had this done. And it's somebody that I know pretty well. Uh, he's out of the LGBTQ community. and But he called very friendly and said, Jim, can I ask you a question before we get going? How can Christians support the Republican Party? Mm-hmm. And I, this is not meant as a political discussion. It's really a moral discussion discussion inside our political structure. And so I say it in that way. Um, But again, the other day I was looking at some of Ray's material and he was talking about when sin entered the world, chaos entered the world. And Jesus came to redeem that, to bring his shalom, his Mm -hmm. peace into a world of chaos and that we as the church partner with him to bring shalom, it's mm-hmm. loving your neighbor. Mm-hmm. That's what that is. And uh, in that context, I applied that to what we're experiencing in our political mm-hmm. structures. And what I see is with one party, the Democratic Party, it's almost an embrace of the chaos. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's dysfunction. It's disorder. it's And then you look, and this is the answer I gave them, first of all those things that we believe in are predominantly found in one of the parties yeah. and not in the other. If they were in the other party, you'd have a lot of conservative Christians voting for the Democratic Party, I believe, if they mm-hmm. were pro-life, pro-family, the things that we're talking about. But it seems like they're on a, a simple level with that. They don't understand the deeper theological meaning to this. And and so to give that argument to the listeners Uh, I just like this idea that where there is order, Mm -hmm. where there is unity, where there is healthy conformity, the right kind, where children are thought of Mm -hmm. ahead of the adults, that kind of structure, that's where Christians are going to find where scripture lines up with worldly structures and spheres of influence. That to me is the right way to answer that question. It goes probably beyond a non-believer's ability to understand that. I don't really care about the political parties. Mm-hmm. But if a party is for order and more godly orientation, sorry, I don't need to defend that. Yeah. They're just doing it.
0: You know, it is true that Christians are there to bring unity, order, peace from chaos, shalom. But we are also agents of justice. In Isaiah it tells it tells us that God was displeased because justice was absent from the public square. Mm. It is very important to do justice, and we see that in our favorite verses, right? Like, what does the Lord require of you? To do justice, love mercy, walk humbly, do justice. What is justice? Giving people what they are due. What are children do? They are due protection. These are—this is the only group in society that cannot defend themselves, except maybe the
1: disabled. It's the biggest example of what you're saying.
0: Yes. So— we are responsible for doing justice especially for the people that cannot do justice for themselves that is children. So, yes love, yes unity especially in our personal relationships, but when it comes to policy, when it comes to the public square, God expects us to be agents of justice. And I have critique for the Republican Party as well. Yes. But unfortunately, there's four main areas where justice for children is not being done and I I wrote a I actually wrote an article in Newsweek, um, called How the GOP Can Become the Party of Children, because they can defend these four fundamental rights of kids, their right to life, their right to their mother and father, their right to innocence, and their right to their intact bodies.
1: Those are all the hot topics today. Those are all
0: the hot topics. They are all child-centric, right? And so we actually need to be robust defenders of the primary rights of children. And unfortunately, one party is on all four of those levels, at some level, doing something. They're at least recognizing it. They're at least it. recognizing it. The other party has, in many ways, made it a critical part of their platform to attack those rights. Right. So I have no apologies. I, I have no problem fighting against an entire party that has sought to damage the innocence of kids, harm their bodies through cross-gender uh, hormones and and. Mutilating surgeries, to end their life in the womb, to remove their mother and father through family structure. I mean, actually, all Christians need to figure out how do we defend the most vulnerable. The first century Christians did it by fishing kids out of the river. The current generation of Christians need to do it by enacting justice on their behalf in these policy matters
1: yeah and that was their form of infanticide that's, that's how right. that generation got rid of unwanted pregnancies yeah. and threw eugenics the, right through the born baby yep. right into the river threw it out at the dump and animals yeah. i'm sorry it's graphic it's, but,
0: it's called exposure it was yeah, a thing
1: exposure so so i you know that is part of the debate and that's why i mean journalists for both of us because we're out there mm-hmm. they will attack us with these kind of questions and try to uh convince us that we're wrong and you know we're right. <laughs>
0: well, if you're there to make adults feel good, we yeah. are wrong. But if we're there to defend the most vulnerable, we are right. Yeah.
1: Uh, years ago, we did a, a film called The Family Project, which really is, was trying to reinforce the idea of traditional family, everything that you're talking about, the importance of male, female, biological parents staying in love and intact with their kids. There was a woman who was a former feminist who gave the line of the whole show, and uh, Frederica Green was her name. And she talked about being a feminist in the 60s. And she said, what we were seeking was acceptance from men, being equal. And what we received through abortion, birth control, sexual byproducts, Mm -hmm. having a child, was abandonment. Mm -hmm. And you Mm -hmm. think of that for a moment, the very thing they were hoping for, this acceptance of who we are as women men just simply took it as abandonment i'm not responsible any longer to you i don't have to care about the kid that we created right because we're not married and i was just a one night fling so see you later
0: well that's the amazing thing about biological reality is it'll get you in the end and so what biology has done is biology has made Some serious insistence upon women when it comes to being connected to their children. They are required to be there for the first nine and a half months of life.
1: A mom's love is the best way to describe that.
0: Well, and the mom's love is actually created and reinforced through chemical processes of higher levels of oxytocin. The bonding that takes place through breastfeeding. Our our responsiveness. Women's brains are different. Their bodies are different. Babies actually prefer my body to my husband's body. They want. They, they want higher fat deposits. They respond to softer skin. My, I am more sensitive to babies' cries. I, can, I, it's a shorter amount of time for me to get up and respond to a baby you know, men, they'll be like, have another Cheerio. I mean, like yeah, no they just don't have the same. That's why
1: wives don't want to leave for the weekend because they yes. don't know what the kids are going to eat. What, oh my gosh. <laughs> What's dad feeding them?
0: Right. So <laughs> men and women offer very different things to children and biology is the reason why. So biology makes it very difficult for women to abandon their children. They literally can't in the first nine and a half months. And then after that, biology has created these brilliant, and when I say biology, we all talk, we know we're talking about the guy who designed the biology, God himself, <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) right? But he made these systems to, in essence, create that mother love of, it is a chemical connectedness reinforced through touch and eye contact and caregiving, usually on steroids for the first three years of the child's life. What does biology require of men? About a three to five minute contribution right at the beginning. That's that's what it requires. And there's no it, mom and baby is connected by a literal cord. That's the only person in our entire life that we will be connected to by a literal cord is our yeah. mother.
1: That's why we say right. there's nothing like a mother's love. We right. don't say that about dad. We
0: don't. So, <laughs> but the problem is that societies across the world have discovered that there's a problem. I'm, mom's connected to baby. That's not an issue. The problem everyone has faced is how do you connect dad to baby, baby when there's no cord, when there's no nursing, when he could leave... Right after the baby's conceived. That's a problem. And John Stone Street would say, what's fascinating is a lot of times you can look at different developments in the world, like where did this kind of architecture originate? Who was the first to develop this kind of food? Nobody can figure out where marriage came from because everybody seemed to get it at the same time. Every society throughout history recognized, you know, from an anthropological perspective I'm talking about everybody seemed to go, oh my gosh, it's a really big problem when dads are gone. So we, because dads are not connected by a literal cord, we have to figure out a way to connect dad to baby. And the way they did it was connecting dad to mom, who's connected to baby. Mm. So the way to connect dad to baby for life is to connect dad to mom for life. Okay, that is literally what marriage serves as. It is the cord that connects that triad, mother, father, child. And without dad connected to mom, which is what this feminist woman, um, Frederica, recognized. We liberated men from being connected to mom, and that meant that men were disconnected from babies. We liberated them from family life completely right. because we obliterated marriage. Well,
1: and now we're reaping the whirlwind because right. of it. And we've re kind of reshuffled what that means, and it's not working. It's and it won't working. work because it's outside of God's common right. grace and his design.
0: It doesn't work because it starves children of the fundamental ingredients of their social emotional diet. So, back when we I I am like rabbit trail woman, very hard to rein me in, but we had talked about what why do children's rights matter? The first one is those two parents are the most connected to invested in and protective of children, but the other thing that it does for kids is it maximizes their development because moms and dads are different. Yeah. Right? And that, that's okay. It's not just okay. It's critical. Yeah,
1: critical. It's critical
0: to have one parent that simplifies their language right down to the kid's level and says, Honey, oh, do you have a boo-boo? Are you okay? And it's incredible to have another parent, dad, who talks to the baby like he talks to everyone else. Dang, that's a gnarly rug rash, buddy. Where'd you get that? Let's go. Let's go. Right? So you have one a parent that's always (laughs) talking to the child right at their level, and one that's constantly expanding their cognitive abilities. You know, moms tend to develop children's fine motor skills, right? They're they're cutting the banana next to mom in the kitchen. They're tying their shoes. They're coloring. They're cutting. Dads, because they have higher testosterone, larger bodies, they're more oriented towards competitiveness and aggressiveness, they're wrestling, they're running, they're jumping, they're climbing, right? They're racing. Mm. They develop kids' gross motor skills. So these are not inconsequential We talk about it at Them Before Us as these are two of the three major staples of a child's social-emotional diet, which is mother's love and father's love. Ten mothers will not give the kid the father love that maximizes their gross motor skills. And then the other component is stability, and marriage is what brings that. Marriage alone is the thing that brings kids the stability that they need to thrive.
1: Yeah. And, I mean, again, there's so many directions to take this. The key here is equipping people with Mm -hmm. the arguments, and that's what your book does a wonderful Mm -hmm. job doing, and the articles that you've written. And so people need to... Google you. Oh,
0: gosh. And then skip through all the haters and yeah, get to the good stuff. stuff. Yeah, forget that stuff. That
1: means you're probably over the I target, <laughs> by the way. There's
0: so many targets.
1: You have a unique perspective on adoption because you worked at that uh, large adoption agency. Um, what did you learn and experience about adoption, drilling into that a little bit mm-hmm.
0: more? Well, at Then Before Us... One of the major fronts on the battle um, of defending children's rights is reproductive technologies, Mm. which um, our technologies are absolutely outpacing any kind of ethical conversation that we have about who children are and what they deserve. So we speak against sperm donation, egg donation, and surrogacy because it always separates children from a genetic parent or a birth parent. And then people will say, well, if you're against that, you must be against adoption because adoption separates children from a birth parent or a A genetic parent. And from the perspective of children being separated from a parent, that's true. But that's where the similarities end. And I'll tell you why. Because adoption and all of the best practice that we have established over the last couple decades, and all of the international treaties that we have around adoption, and all of the internal processes that each state has set up, and then the federal organizations that have to clear adoptive parents, we all have the same goal in mind. And that is advancing the best interest of the child. In reproductive technologies, it's not an institution centered around the well-being of child. It is a marketplace centered around the desires of adults. So in adoption, the goal is, if adoption is done well, the goal is to find a home for every child in need, hmm. okay? Okay. And that requires that adults sacrifice for kids going through, you know it, I know it, massive amounts of background screening, vetting, home studies, references, post-placement, training, all of that, right? We sacrifice for them, right? And I remember when I was working at the adoption agency, I went to the founder and I said, I am working so hard to get this this couple approved. Oh boy, there's really a lot of obstacles here. I mean, there's some things in here that are kind of challenging, but I promise you, I'm going to get this done. And she's like, You misunderstand who we're here for. Mm. We're not here to give every adult who wants a baby, a baby.
1: Like a present.
0: That's right. We're (laughs) not here for the adults. We are here to find moms and dads for every kid that needs one. The adult is paying us, but they're not our client. Mm. The kid is our client. So the kid is not the client in big fertility. In big fertility, the adults are the client. There's no background checks. There's no screening. The only check that has to clear is the check at the bank. We already have children who were created through reproductive technologies, sperm donation, egg donation, especially surrogacy, that went home with people that would never have passed an adoption screening, people that already had convicted um, records for child exploitation, children who, I mean, would never have passed an adoption background check. I mean, that's in these two different worlds. Adoption is actually an institution that upholds justice for children. It seeks to mend a wound. Reproductive technologies inflicts a wound through commercial processes to satisfy the desires of adults.
1: Yeah. And, you know, again, thinking through the theological uh, issues here, it's what you, the Lord has really given you that gift. It's okay. What's the core objective here? And even attacking uh, the system of adoption, you're saying the biological parents are not there. Mm -hmm. You know, so this is, again, the second best. Yes option to place that child this is
0: a just society's response yeah to children who have lost their mom and dad and
1: just to tie the bow on it where we were a while ago this idea with gay adoption Mm -hmm. you by doing that you are depriving that child of either a mother Mm -hmm. figure or a father figure in their life and that's why uh, we would oppose that it's Mm -hmm. not that we hate anybody Mm -hmm. but what again from the lens of what is best for the child not what's best for the movement right
0: and that's how you need to think about it, because there are states where people are advocating that LGBT people have a right to adopt.
1: Well, not only that, there are states now that say Christians can't adopt because oh, of their faith.
0: A hundred percent. It's bizarre. It's bizarre. And so both of those problems are solved by looking at it from a child-centric perspective. Absolutely. You don't have a right to adopt. You gay couple don't have a right to adopt. But I would say nobody has a right to adopt. My husband and I didn't have a right to our adopted child, he had a right to be adopted. Mm. It's the children that have a right to be adopted. Adoption does not exist to give kids to adults. Adoption exists to find a loving home for children who are in need. So we have to, again, like a lot of what we do at Them Before Us is we reframe All the marriage and family conversations away from what adults want and center it on who are children, how do they come into being, what are their rights, what maximizes their thriving.
1: Let me ask you kind of the proof in the pudding question. When you're talking to people who oppose you and Mm -hmm. you talk about these pretty core things, you know, children need parents Mm -hmm. and they need a mother and a father, Mm -hmm. et cetera. Have you been able to persuade some to say, "Hmm, okay, I understand what you're saying, Uh, and they kind of move tell us about some of those stories so
0: i will tell you why we found the movement and it is because we are clear so there's there's not a lot that's novel about what i'm saying you know like but it's forceful but it's forceful what it is, is is a clear and simple template that you can use to lay over the top of any conversation about marriage and family and come up with the right policy conclusion and the right personal decision so marriage cohabitation no fault divorce, same sex parenting, transgender parenting, polygamy, do, um, sperm donation, egg donation, adoption. Those are not different issues. They are all the same issue with different manifestations. The question is are you respecting or are you disregarding the rights of children? And so, first of all, that framework is helpful. But the reason why it's helpful is because I I did things wrong and I learned a lot when I was just writing about this before I started the nonprofit. Um, I made a lot of mistakes. And one of them was I was hammering same-sex parenting. Like this is unjust. You cannot separate a child from their mother or father so that you can create a home surrounded, you know, that mirrors your romantic attractions more than the child's rights. And they're like, oh, kids need moms and dads, huh? Huh? Oh, is that why you're fighting against no-fault divorce? oh, is that why you're angry about heterosexual couples using sperm donors? Mm. And I went...
1: You're right. (laughs) The tough question. I was like,
0: that's right. If you really are defending children, every adult sacrifices. Single, married, gay, straight, fertile and infertile. Everybody has to do hard things for kids. And the reality is, that's a fair message. Mm -hmm. It's not a message that targets the gays. And numerically, the gays are not responsible for the abysmal state of the U.S. family. Heterosexuals did that. We did it through the sexual revolution. We did it through no-fault divorce. We did it through pioneering the reproductive technologies that made it possible to create intentionally motherless and fatherless children. Heterosexual couples did that, right? So it is a message that... And actually, that kind of clarity and consistency, it wins you people. So yeah, yes, I have... We have LGBT supporters of our nonprofit we have them represented at all levels of our organization to be honest from the board on down to our volunteers um because this is a mess when you say everyone sacrifices not just hey you sacrifice i get to do whatever i want right right when you say nope all of us are going to sacrifice at some point all of us will face a hard decision about whether we are going to prioritize the kids or what we want and when all of us say we will prioritize the kids then i'm like then you're one of us you get in here you belong with me
1: yeah that raises a whole nother question about where we're at in the culture, mm-hmm. not even anchored into the rights of children or the right of having two parents, et cetera, mm-hmm. but it's that idea that are we living it? Mm-hmm. I mean, there, that's a tough question. And we all need to look at ourselves and yep. say, are we abiding in the Word of God and are we expressing it? And the fact that people are at uh, a crossroads with us who don't believe in these things is evidence that we're not living it well. Yep. Because I think if we were living it really well uh, with fewer hypocrites, I get it, we're all sinners saved by grace, Mm -hmm. but if we didn't have Christian leaders having affairs and other things, the world would show more respect and deference to what we talk about. But we undermine that by not living it.
0: So there is, um, in my next book, um, which is, I don't know if we're going to talk about that, but in my next- We are,
1: you're about to. Oh, okay. So
0: my next book is- Actually, like, how do you transmit your values to the next generation? Okay. Great book. And it's called Raising Conservative Kids in a Woke City. And really, it's like, even if everything's against you, the schools, social media, the friend group, maybe your extended family, um, you actually don't need to shrink back. You don't need to be afraid. You have everything that you need to build in a proper understanding of the world, because that's the power of proper parenting. But one of the principles in the book we talk about is you become what you behold, Right? You become what it is that you're looking at. That is why we sing, Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Why is it that we need to look to the Lord? Because there's no other way to be holy as He is holy unless we're looking at His holiness. So that is actually true in the culture as well. We talk about the importance of mothers and fathers and working through issues and doing hard things on behalf of children. You can say it, but you also have to show it. We need more examples. For people to behold so that they know what they can and should become. And unfortunately, with the massive disintegration in the family, including and, the church. Including in the church, fewer and fewer children have that picture of what it looks like to what they what they should become in terms of a husband and wife who are able to go through for better or for worse in sickness and health, for richer or for poorer. Like you don't become that by accident. You have to behold that. And if you're not beholding that in your own family of origin, you need to be able to behold that in other places, hopefully at the church. But I would also encourage your listeners, you might be the family that somebody needs to behold. Yeah. And like my husband and I both came from broken homes. We were both children of divorce. But both of us had a couple people in our childhood that we could behold and say, that's different. In fact, my husband... He just did not have any reference point at all for intact families and his divorce situation was tumultuous to, to put it mildly. Mm. But he had a friend whose parents just kind of brought him into their family and he would go to their house and he'd be like, This is so Absorbing bizarre. Absorbing it. Yeah, he's like thirsty. The, the dad lives here every day.
1: Yeah, right. The kids
0: don't go anywhere else on the weekend. What is this place? Yeah. And it was so peaceful. He's like, there's nobody screaming. There's nobody throwing things. And even as a seven-year-old, eight-year-old, he he said to himself as an eight-year-old, when I become a dad, my dad is going to be like Chad's house. It's not going to be like my house. Why? Because he was able to behold yeah. what he wanted to become. And so that is a challenge for all of us, first of all, to be able to be the people we want our children to become in our own life, but also... You kind of need to be a little evangelistic in your married life. Let people behold your marriage, which isn't perfect. You're going to be right. let them behold you working through challenges, behold you committed. being faithful, but staying committed, yeah. going to counseling sometimes if you need it. Yeah, you know? exactly. Um, but remaining and sacrificing, prioritizing the kids and their rights and needs, not everything that they want, not I need yeah. this new iPhone, but no, prioritizing their rights and need above your desires. Because at some point, it's going gonna, it's gonna to challenge all of us.
1: It is the right thing, absolutely. And that's why when you speak it, it resonates with everybody who's a truth seeker. The problem is how much selfishness has yeah. crept into the church as well, the right. world and the church. Yep. Man, even our technology, it's on full display, whether it's TikTok, mm-hmm. uh, X or Twitter, whatever <laughs> we call it now. But I mean, it is almost so many of my friends who are believers say, it's like a, a can of something has been cracked open and it's not good. I think it's rooted in this issue of selfishness because we feed on our children rather than, and Mm -hmm. I mean that in every way, Mm -hmm. sexually in every way, Mm -hmm. rather than sacrificing for them, having the right orientation, Mm -hmm. not about our sexuality, but about who's most important here mm-hmm. which is what you've been talking about yeah. and i think we the whole culture including the church which is submerged in this culture is it's having an effect on us
0: it is a me obsessed world it's a me obsessed world and you are right that has slinked into the church and a lot of that is because churches have failed to create a robust apologetic Mm. On especially on all matters of what it means to be human, and they have because it's uncomfortable because you're going to get attacked if you do, um, and instead many churches have said, well, we just want to preach the gospel, we just want to preach the gospel. God is love, love God, love people, and I'm like, okay, that's fine. That yes, just means important. That just means the culture is going to disciple your people on right. all these different issues, and so the church actually, like like I said before, we actually have the only worldview that is able to refute all of these damaging ideas about how we use technology, or rather how technology uses us is really what it is, right? Who children are, what their rights are, what adults' obligations and responsibilities are to them. Every single issue that we are dealing with today has to... Okay, let me back up. In the first century, first couple centuries of the church, we warred with each other in in a sense of we had to figure out what was the nature of God, right? Is Jesus 50-50... Is it modalism? Does God turn into the son who turns into the spirit? Is it Gnosticism? Did he have a body or was it just a spirit? I mean, like we had like councils and like warring, you know, gospels about all of that. And ultimately we decided on the Trinity, right? And that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And we know it doesn't make sense, but that's what's going on. And that we're going to stand by it. Okay. So the whole point of engagement in the first century was what is the first couple of centuries is what is the nature of God? We had to solve that problem. Then we get to the Reformation. And the question is, what is the nature of salvation? What is the church, right? And we wrestled through that and we argued there was death. Death was involved in that. It was war, right? And we argued and we reasoned and ultimately came to some different conclusions about that Protestants and Catholics, right? But largely answered the question in our respective camps of what is the nature of salvation? Today, every single thing that matters about what is happening in the world today comes down to what is the nature of man? Mm. When does life begin? When does life end and who decides? If it's male, what is the nature of male and female? What is the nature of marriage? Can you a man become a woman? Can a woman become a man? What is our relation? What does it mean to be a human in relation to emerging technologies? Can we use them to enhance us? Can we just use them to restore us? Every single thing that we talk about, abortion, assisted suicide, marriage, transgenderism, transing the kids... All of it comes down to what does it mean to be human? Only the church has the worldview to answer that question. This is where, as far as I'm concerned, pastors, theologians, you slide all your chips over to what does it mean to be human, right? Because if you don't answer those questions for your people, the world will do it for you. The influences will do it for you but you are supposed to be discipling the nations. Don't let the nations
1: disciple your people, right? You do it. That's powerful. Katie, one of the most difficult questions that I will get is how do you remain calm, Mm -hmm. Uh, especially when the other side, whatever that means, is attacking you? Mm -hmm. And you've had that in spades, right? You've had so many instances Mm -hmm. where people are attacking you for what you're expressing. How do you stay rooted in the fruit of the spirit which is love, joy, peace, goodness, gladness, mercy, long suffering, Mm -hmm. all the attributes of God and not go to the other guy's fruit.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes I don't do it well. (laughs) Sometimes, you know, the urge to um, bring justice on the Lord's behalf, rather than letting him bring justice on my behalf. um, Sometimes I can get confused. But I will say this is where my grace giver has served me really well, Mm. that um, even if there is an attack coming, I usually go, gosh, I really, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like there's something about me that just wants to connect with them so in that sense I have to get out of my comfort zone to be the truth teller in those situations the grace giver kind of bubbles to the surface and that's okay but um, it's it's still very very hard and you know I started out all of this by blogging anonymously because I was afraid because I know what these people will do to you. I know that they will oh, try they... to destroy you. Absolutely. And, um, so I had this aggressive blogger who like back searched one of my pictures, found the IP address, connected it to my husband's church, and then like doxed all the members of our leadership on mm. his blog. In essence, like go get them. And like these people didn't know that I was writing. I was just doing it, you know, you know, from my own little dining room table. And, um, I just felt awful. You know, it's one thing when people attack you. Mm -hmm. And I've had to develop a thick skin. I still hate it, um, but I can deal with it. But when they come after people that you love. Or your family. Or your family. You just go, okay, never mind. I'll stop. You got me. You got me. I won't do it anymore. Um, But thankfully. Which is
1: exactly what they want you to do. Which is the goal.
0: But the men of my church are like, let me check. Nope, keep going. (laughs) (laughs) So they were great. Um, So it's going to come for you. But the good news is that Jesus was like, FYI you're gonna have trouble. Uh, I've been there. I've been there <laughs> uh, And good news I've overcome the world. Yeah So the trouble should not stop us from enacting justice on behalf of the most vulnerable. okay That should not be an impediment. But then when you're in the midst of that debate, um, my goal and, and I don't do it automatically all the time, but if I can remind myself, I try to be the most beautiful person in the argument. I try to Mm. be the most beautiful person on the Twitter thread or whatever it is. And I think about this um, comment that I heard Mel Gibson talk about when he was creating The Passion. He said, he told the people that were writing the music that at the ugliest parts, the scourging, the nailing, you know, the part where the the visual graphics were the most devastating, the music needed to be the most beautiful. Oh, wow. And that he paired those two together. Mm. The uglier the scene, the more ethereal the music. And I thought that's a really good recipe for believers that no matter how heated and how ugly it gets, the harder they go, the more beautiful you become. And that's going to look different in every conversation. But in me, that's what I have in my mind. Okay, how can I be the most beautiful person in this conversation? Sometimes it's being quiet. Sometimes it is quietly saying the truth. Sometimes it's just standing there and taking it. And then blessing them afterwards um and so the good news is you've got a holy spirit that's going to help you along yeah okay but um we don't respond in like kind right our message is different and our method is different, and that's exactly how it's supposed to be.
1: I've, I've said this before, I'll say it here, for those that haven't heard me talk about this, I had lunch with David Horowitz. Oh, yeah. Uh, he came in to do some recordings, and we were just across the street here with, with him, and he flipped from being an ultra-liberal communist right. to being a pretty full-throated conservative, uh, conservative talking mostly about education, what mm-hmm. the damaged liberals are doing with education. So we're at lunch, mm-hmm. and he's a secular Jew, Yeah. so he doesn't. he's not a Christian. And we're talking, he goes, Jim, don't you know you're in an alley? And the other side has switchblades. <laughs> I said, David, we're not stupid. We get yeah. that. But our weapons are love, joy, peace, goodness, you know. Mm-hmm. And he looked at me and went, Wow, those are really bad weapons. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it reminded me of what I'm sure the Lord encountered when yeah. he was telling people in that day with Rome on their neck and everything else, you know, yeah, my weapons are going to be this. Yeah. <laughs> love and joy. They must have been looking at him like, Lord, those are really bad weapons. <laughs> and I
0: think it's it's good to recognize that we are at war. Yeah. We're not warring against flesh and blood. Right. But it is war. And you need to be armed, obviously, with the fruits of the Spirit and with truth. Yeah. The truth of God's word, 100%. But also, you need to be armed with truth when it comes to all these different worldview topics. I just know that, you know, I've got four kids they are all teenagers, one just turned 20, and we are parenting our kids in Seattle. It's war. I mean, I love the people there. We love the people there, but it is war. And so we recognizing that it's war is actually very helpful because then you send your children out well-armed. And I tell them, you know, I expect you to know more about these topics than everyone else. I expect you to be the expert on marriage, homosexuality, abortion, socialism, American history, um, the free market. Um, transgenderism. You should be the authority when you walk into a room. And not because you're going to pick fights, but because nobody's going to make you move. You're going to stand firm. Um, Nobody is going to be able to bluster you around when they pull out their switchblades, Mm. right? You're going to be able to stand there with armor, because you are well equipped.
1: Katie, this is exactly why I wanted to have you come on and, and talk um, about these topics. I'm just here for the merch. Yeah, right, the merch. You got the merch <laughs> cup. We'll give you some coffee. But what a great book, Then Before Us, and so much more, your articles. I just, man, if we can give you some oxygen to get that message out to more people, get people connected to your website and the things that you're doing, I think the church will be better off for it. Thanks for being with us.
0: Thanks so much for having me on.
1: What a conversation. Stay with me because in a moment I have an extended conversation with Katie about transgender issues and the tragic consequences for young people and children. I was so energized by that discussion with Katie Faust. Uh, She's doing so much to try and make our world a better and safer place for children. Jesus said in Luke 18, 16, let the children come unto me and do not hinder them for to such belong the kingdom of God. We have a lot of responsibility as Christians to protect children because they can't protect themselves. And I want to say the Refocus podcast exists to equip ordinary people to open the eyes of the culture, to really look at what's happening. As we're transformed by God's spirit, we bring others to him by showing them compassion and truth. I love the example Katie gave about being the most beautiful person in a conversation where there is disagreement. People remember that. I've experienced it, and I think that should be our goal, bringing peace, God's shalom, into the chaos of this world. And that's why I started this podcast. Refocus is here to inspire and equip you to engage the world with God's grace and his truth. If you can help us continue important conversations like this, one, please support us financially. That's how it gets done. Uh, We don't have sponsors. Just great conversations to help you grow in your Christian faith. With the gift of any amount to support Refocus, I'll send you a copy of Katie's great book, Then Before Us, Why We Need a Global Children's Rights Movement. And she has so much more content to help you defend the rights of children. Now, I want to turn to a fascinating discussion uh, with Katie, a hot-button topic in the culture, uh, one you're probably having discussions around, and it's about transgender issues. She had some strong things to say about how hormone therapy and transgender surgeries are irreversibly harming children and teens. So let's jump into that part of the discussion. Katie, today, I mean, one of the big conflicts is this idea of Transgendered or dysphoric, sexually mm-hmm. dysphoric people. Mm-hmm. And it actually is creating quite a ripple even within the broader community, yeah. the LGBT community, mm-hmm. because not everybody's in agreement on that side of it. Martina Navratilova, the mm-hmm. great female woman's uh, tennis star is saying, no, I don't think biological men now presenting as women should mm-hmm. be allowed to play in women's sports. Mm-hmm. And the Christian community goes, yay, mm-hmm. somebody from that side mm-hmm. saying something that's true. Yeah. But again, there is such confusion on the transgendered side. When we talk about the lesbian and the gay side, it's pretty, now it's kind of passe, right? Mm -hmm. It's become old. Oh, it's
0: so 2015, Jim.
1: It's so 2015. I remember, I think it was Bill Maher on his show. Bill Maher's a liberal. He said, oh, there's a problem at the gay pride parade. Mm -hmm. Nobody on the platform was gay. They were Mm -hmm. all transgendered speakers. And he was making a joke out of the fact that, the gay pride parade has now moved on to the trans parade. Right. And and so you have, I guess at, at the top in this way, that some people in the culture and a growing number of people are willing to support this all around sexual identity mm-hmm. and sexual desires mm-hmm. and even not the act of it, but that I really feel more like dressing like a woman. I feel like a woman. We have to have some sympathy for the dysphoria of that. Mm -hmm. But it is creating havoc.
0: Right. Well, and gender dysphoria is real. And the people that suffer from it experience genuine distress. They need help. They need help recognizing and embracing their bodies. Um, And actually, the Right now, the safest way to deal with that is what they call watchful waiting, right? Which is around 90% of these kids will in, end up embracing their own physical bodies, their maleness or their, their biological maleness. sex. Yes, if you just don't touch them.
1: Don't get in don't the way. That's Dr. Mark Yarhouse. Yes, yeah, that's right. Who's Let on the panel. Let them cut
0: their hair short, wear baggy clothes, don't touch your body. Don't yeah. touch your body, right? No cross-sex hormones, no puberty blockers, no surgeries, no nothing. I actually just saw this picture of... Um, Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt's daughter. I forget what her name is, but um, she was the one that would always wear men's suits as a kid. Super, super short hair. right? And they didn't do any kind of interventions with her. I just saw a picture of her. She's like 18. Stunning. She's stunning. Stunning woman. Stunning woman. Like literally what you would expect of the byproduct of Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt. Like gorgeous. And can you imagine if they had done these interventions on her. But I imagine that there was some genuine struggle going on in her life. Yeah, but
1: ironically, that's the point. Leave them alone. Leave them alone. And up to 90% of those kids will self-correct. That's
0: exactly right. The problem
1: we have morally now is the movement. The adults, again, preying on children, saying we're going to turn them into uh, man, an experiment basically. We're going to take them at 13, 14 mm-hmm. or younger and we're going to allow them to do hormone treatment. We're going to encourage them to get surgery, right. double mastectomy, hysterectomy right. in some cases. That is so... And talk about wanting to get into a fight. Right. That would put me there because it is so disgustingly yeah. immoral and they don't care, seemingly. this
0: is This is, again where the power needs to flow from the children's rights argument because it's not the other side who misuses children's rights to say children have a right to access testosterone from Planned Parenthood. Children have a right to have their transgender identity hidden from their parents at school. Those are not natural rights. That is damaging adult ideology masquerading as children's rights. Children have a right to an intact, unmedicalized body, okay? Children have a right to... The Hippocratic oath being exercised on them when they have a problem, which is not doing any harm. This, And I would say it's not even a parental rights argument, right? Where parents say, it's my right to raise my children in accordance with my faith to direct their education and to, re- to direct their medical upbringing. That is true. You do. But you don't have the right, your parental rights don't mean that you can chemically castrate your child. We have to protect children's rights all children's rights even if it is even if their doctors are giving them bad information even if the parents are confused about how to treat their children this is an area where i would say especially as the church certainly as conservatives in the political world need to make a case based on the rights of children because what that means is We have to create a protective firewall around them through policy and through cultural messaging, just this kind of conversation, conversations you're having with your neighbor and your friends, don't touch the kids. Like literally my entire message is don't touch the kids. Don't touch their right to life. Don't touch their right to their mother and father. Don't touch their innocence. Don't touch their bodies. Don't touch the kids. Okay. That is the message. That is the message that flows from the worldview perspective of we are here to protect the most vulnerable, the rights of children. And if you can solve that problem, you do solve an awful lot of the problems that we're having in terms of curriculum with kids, in terms of cross, you know, eradicating women's sports by blurring the boundaries between male and yeah, female yeah. right when you blur the boundaries between male and female women and children lose a hundred percent of the time right hundred percent historically
1: of the time. that's been true right
0: so in my opinion the most effective way to bring clarity with compassion to this topic is by looking at it from the perspective of how do we defend the rights of kids
1: so good um Let me throw a couple of observations your way and have you discuss them. Uh, Rapid files, Yeah, no, I mean, I like that. One is uh, what's happening in Europe. It seems like Mm -hmm. it's so, again, so frustrating that liberals in America, after Western Europe, Europe has been trying this for decades now.
0: And reversing.
1: And and now they're backing up. Mm -hmm. And Tavistock in the UK, which Mm -hmm. was a minor you know, a treatment center for minor children Mm -hmm. for surgical and hormone treatment with gender dysphoria, boop, closed down, over a thousand lawsuits. Mm -hmm. And then you have Sweden, Finland, Mm -hmm. uh, Norway, UK, all saying there is no benefit to the patient, to the minor patient, Mm -hmm. when it comes to these treatments. Therefore, we are now going to cease doing those, except for clinical trials, small clinical trials. At the very time that Europe's doing that, we're saying, we're going to go headlong. In America, we're going to defend a Mm -hmm. child's ability to get these treatments. And to the point where the other day I read where the American Pediatrics Association was having a discussion on gender dysphoria, they prevented data from coming to the floor. These are scientists, these are precious must be protected at
0: all costs, right? Their ideology must be protected.
1: And so all of a sudden now, to me, they're no longer doctors and scientists when they do that. Preventing clinical data, coming to the floor of Mm -hmm. a discussion, a medical discussion, they're ideologues, they're advocates, they're politicians now.
0: Yeah, you look at WPATH, which is the organization that is setting a lot of the standards for transgender treatment here in the United States, and it is an activist run organization. It's not a data-driven, it's not even a physician-driven organization. The people that are setting the standards of care for transgenderism are activists. And you are right. We are. It's interesting to me how in America, we valorize Europe in so many ways, and we are out of step with them on an awful lot of things. The transgender care is now the most recent, but even things like abortion, right? right. Most European countries cap abortion at 13 weeks, right? Right. And France. Yeah, France. And people go, what? You gotta yeah. be kidding. You gotta be kidding me. But that's the reality. And I, I don't know, like, maybe is that one of the advantages of socialized medicine? We're like, this is just too expensive. Are you sure we need to be doing this? Right. right. But where they actually have to look at this and say, is this the right way to be treating our people and spending our resources? And they've come to the conclusion country after country after country. After, no, no, especially because there is no research to back this up. When you actually look at outcomes for people who have undergone these interventions, they are
1: harmed they are harmed and that's the point i think you know so often the media the the lines that are being used is that there's a greater uh, incident of suicide if they don't yes, intervene. Right. The data does not support nope. that anymore. Nope. There's no change, there's no difference. Yes, the, and, I think
0: there's one large-scale study that actually was able to measure outcomes for people after they went through the full, like there's sort of a four-fold um, transgender treatment plan, social transition, block the puberty, cross-sex hormones, and then ultimately surgery. surgery, right? And so there's been one long-term study. Oh my gosh, suicide increase massively uh, right so this idea of like do you want an alive son or a dead daughter the worst emotional manipulation that isn't backed by any data at
1: all yeah that's so so sad the other element to this and and we've interviewed some of these uh, individuals what they mm-hmm. call detransitioners, transitioners chloe co and mm-hmm. others who are so brave and mm-hmm. so bold and you know chloe co is still young i mean 19 20 21 yeah. But what they're expressing now is similar to Frederica Green. They're saying, I was looking for acceptance. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize at the time I needed to mutilate my body to get it. And now that I'm in my 20s, my early 20s in most cases, I realize I don't want to be that. But now I've already destroyed my body. I won't have a child. I no longer have breasts. I no longer have a uterus.
0: Yeah, and I'm going to be on hormones either way. I mean, like I follow so many detransitioners and it is their lives are so hard because they can't if they go back to living as a woman, a lot of times they have removed the mechanisms to hormonally function as a woman. They're going to be they're going right. to be a lifelong pharmaceutical right. customer no matter what direction they go in. This is a cash cow for the medical world. And we wow. actually have a few Children's hospitals on tape talking about, do you understand if we can get a a kid to transition, it is going to be tens of thousands of dollars for us over the course of, you know, their lifetime. Absolutely, if not hundreds of thousands. That's right. Healthy children don't benefit, you know, the pharmaceutical companies and cosmetic surgeons. Confused children do. Well,
1: we've got to have eyes wide open. And I think, again, this is why what you're expressing is so critical. We can't be any more clear than that about the dangers uh, with the transgender crisis. And I say crisis for a reason. I so appreciate Katie's insights on this topic. Uh, We have to step up and protect the children in our communities. And we'll continue to address that topic on the Refocus podcast. We've also developed a transgender resource page to help you understand gender dysphoria in the culture while explaining the Christian perspective, a Q&A document to offer guidance to parents, and so much more. Please check that out in the show notes where you see the link. All right, for the inbox segment, here's a voicemail from Sam. I've heard a lot of people say that Christians are only pro-life until the baby is born, and then we don't seem to care about it. How would you respond to that? What do you think the average person can do to change that perception? Yeah, Sam, I've heard many people claim that we're unloving because they perceive that we uh, defend children in the womb Uh, more than those uh, outside the womb, once they're born. I always say this is like an old 1970s argument that pro-abortion people talk about. There is so much good stuff being done for women and their babies today through crisis pregnancy centers. We work with, I think, over 2,000 of those centers in the country. And they do job training, job placement, uh, life skills training, how to budget They have pantries where the women can come and get diapers, and they give them cribs and all kinds of things. So it really is just an old, uh, outdated, outmoded defense of the pro-life movement. Um, One thing you can do if you don't know what to do to help assist in the pro-life side is work with focus on the family. Just one example is our ministry, Wait No More, which is a foster care and adoption program. Through Wait No More, uh, you can buy a suitcase for a foster child so they don't have to go from home to home with a trash bag, which is the normal way they transport their clothing and items. It gives them some dignity and helps them feel loved and supported. The details will be in the show notes. Thanks for the question, Sam. And since I answered it here on the podcast, I'm going to send you a copy of my book, Refocus. Now, if you have a question for me, please send a voicemail by clicking on the link in the show notes. I'd love to hear from you. And thanks for listening to Refocus with Jim Daly. You can help us inspire and equip more people by telling your friends. Also, like, listen, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Next time on Refocus, I'll share an insightful conversation with Dr. Erwin Lutzer as he describes how a movement of cultural socialism is deceiving so many Americans with propaganda. He'll share how the church needs to step up and respond. You and I are called to be faithful, even if the church that we are in isn't everything that it should be. After all, what church is? Correct. But still, individually and as families, what we must do is to say that we will not bow to the culture. That's coming up on Monday, November 6th, on the next Refocus with Jim Daly. Are you a pastor? Then you know ministry is full of challenges.
0: But those challenges sometimes come from lies that you believe about your role and expectations of you. As a pastor, you and your spouse need to be refreshed and encouraged. And that's why Focus on the Family presents the Focused Pastor Couples Conference. Join us as we hear from Paul David Tripp, Dr. Greg Smalley, Ted Cunningham, and more. Mark your calendar to join us on October 28th through 30th right here at Focus on the Family in Colorado Springs. Visit thefocusedpastor.com slash refresh for more details.